misinformation on WeChat is a real problem and it radicalizes a lot of people and, you know, very harmful ways or very damaging ways. And it has like real life material effects on policy and can like actually harm Asian American, other communities of color, other marginalized communities. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Eileen Huang, is an anti-racist advocate who's an undergraduate at Yale College. Eileen is currently taking a year off to work on the WeChat Project, a group of volunteers she put together to combat right-wing misinformation among Chinese Americans on WeChat. Eileen is known for a widely read open letter she wrote last year confronting anti-blackness in the Asian community. Eileen and I spoke about why she wrote the letter, the backlash and attacks that it brought to her and her family, and what she's been up to with the WeChat Project. You should know Eileen's work. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Eileen Huang of the WeChat Project. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Eileen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Eileen Huang. I go by she and they pronouns. And I'm currently a third-year student at Yale taking a gap year, so I'll be a junior next year, studying English with interest specifically in ethnic studies and in Asian American studies, although I'm not an ethnic studies major, just take a lot of classes in it. During my gap year, I've been working on the WeChat project, which is this initiative to provide progressive or alternative narratives and to kind of combat misinformation among the Chinese diaspora, specifically first-generation Chinese immigrants who may not have the same access to like English language media and resources that, you know, English speakers do. And I've seen from this project that there are a lot of immigrant communities that are becoming like increasingly radicalized toward the right wing or um, being fed a lot of misinformation, usually by conservatives and conservative outlets. This project is sort of an effort to combat that, especially on WeChat, which is a Chinese social media platform and one that a lot of Chinese Americans or Chinese diaspora are like especially plugged into. And so that's really what my initiative is about. We write blogs, articles, and we share them on WeChat because that's one primary way in which information is spread sort of through these like informal blog news articles. 
And usually we try to counter things that or narratives that are being really like heavily pushed on WeChat, like for instance, anti-affirmative action arguments, anti-immigrant rhetoric, you know, transphobic content, anti-Black content. Um, So we really try to write against that and try to give people like, you know, the most accurate information about current social issues that are kind of trending on the platform. Um, So I've been working on that and um, also just generally staying involved with Asian American advocacy, which is something I'm quite passionate about. Well, it sounds like a a worthy project. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your family's like. Yeah, sure. So I actually am back in my hometown, but I grew up here. It's a predominantly white and conservative suburb, pretty affluent in New Jersey. And so growing up as like a queer woman of color, as an Asian American woman, I definitely received a lot of sort of microaggressions and also just saw like firsthand the effects of sort of wealth and class inequality where I grew up in like the surrounding areas. Um, And so this really sort of emboldened me to dive more into like ethnic studies Um, critical race theory, Asian American studies in college to sort of better understand and contextualize my experience growing up, you know, surrounded by a lot of conservatism and like white supremacy and those things that really affected my identity and marginalization, you know, as a queer woman of color. My environment definitely really influenced who I am today and it really sort of informed my politics or pushed me to discover things that would later like influence my politics. My parents are first-generation immigrants from mainland China. I like talk to them a lot about social issues and they're generally like quite progressive too. Um, But I've also seen firsthand sort of the effects or sort of sometimes they share like news articles with me that they read on WeChat and all these like Chinese diaspora platforms that are just like complete conspiracy theories especially during, I think, some of the most shocking stuff was coming out during like the Black Lives Matter resurgence this uh, last summer. Like my family life and hearing from my parents also really compelled me to start exploring this project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why did you pick Yale? For multiple reasons. I was interested in studying English because I've always been like strongly interested in literature and writing, especially like creative writing. That's something I did a lot in high school. And so I knew Yale had like a really good English department. And that's kind of what led me to like partially choose it. I also just really liked the atmosphere. It might sound like sort of cliche, but like I really like the residential college system and kind of that like combination of like the liberal arts field, but also, you know, has like the resources and the wealth, obviously, of like a large university, research university that can like definitely support me with like whatever I do. Yeah, so I'm pretty happy with my decision. I really enjoyed my time at Yale so far. So you've, you've had two years there and now taking some time. It's turned out to be what you hoped it to be. What surprised you the most? I think what surprised me the most and maybe something a lot of people still have like misconceptions about is like Yale is very homogenous, that it's mostly like wealthy students at like this predominantly white institution. But like, I think the thing that surprised me the most is that it's actually really diverse. And I think it's one of the the places where I've met like the most people from very different backgrounds. I think another misconception people have is that like, 
Yale students are very sort of privileged and are in these sort of ivory towers um, where they don't have to think about things like class, race, white supremacy, income inequality and those things. But I definitely don't think that's true either. I think like there definitely is a lot of privilege and a lot of power and access to power that comes with being a Yale student. But I've met a lot of people who are like very cognizant of that. And um, I was really shocked by like the number of students at Yale who are also, you know, like people of color who are like very passionate about like advocating for um, Black people, like Indigenous people, Asian Americans and other, you know, marginalized communities. And I think like meeting those students and meeting those people who were like really interested in activism and really interested in advocacy also really influenced me and definitely really inspired me. So that's something that's like surprised me a lot about Yale is just like the diversity and also like the fact that there's so many people who are like pretty like socially and politically informed. Do you feel like there's space for a range of thoughtful political dialogue? There's a myth or a theory out there that there's kind of an enforcement on liberal campuses of an orthodoxy on the left what do you experience? I think in my experience, there definitely is like a huge range of political beliefs at Yale and people who have like, you know, different ideologies and different like solutions to like world and, you know, U.S. issues. Yeah, I've never really seen that enforcement of, you know, like a conventional or like orthodox progressive way of thinking. I think even sometimes students have a hard time, you know, advocating for progressive issues against like a more traditional administration. Like one example I can think of is a couple years ago, there were faculty members in uh, Yale's ethnicity, race and migration department who resigned because Yale wasn't providing enough funding or wasn't providing enough stability to the program. Um, And sort of in solidarity and support with that, a lot of students began like organizing and really advocating and, you know, like hosting sit-ins, teach-ins about the importance of like ethnic studies and the importance of this program and also like how it meant so much to students. I would even say more progressive issues are harder to talk about because they're usually things like, you know, uncomfortable truths that people have a hard time reckoning with. How did you first find yourself pulled into activism? What was your path there? I do want to provide like a caveat that I don't consider myself an activist per se. I think I have a lot of like class privilege and also, like I said, access to power and capital that a lot of people who are, you know, sort of activists, like on the ground doing community organizing, doing things like mutual aid, uh, don't really have access to. And their primary concern is like meeting the needs of the community. So personally, I consider those people activists and I kind of identify more as like, you know, an advocate or someone who um, helps activists or helps to like amplify them. But I became really interested in all of these issues. I think like, yeah, like I said, growing up in a very conservative area, but I didn't really have the vocabulary to like express how I felt and also to like find solutions to that until I got to college. 
it was then I sort of had like the arsenal and the vocabulary to kind of articulate my experiences of marginalization, also like the other experiences of people of color, like under white supremacy. So not only did I have the sort of like theoretical experience or like theoretical background to start expressing myself, you know, I also ran into like a lot of even like to this day, obviously material issues that are present in like BIPOC communities. Um, Like at Yale, um, I attended like a bunch of protests in the area um, regarding specifically like police brutality in New Haven, which is like a huge issue. And one that I was really encouraged to see like Yale students really speaking up about. And I think that also really informed my advocacy work to this day with this sort of spike in anti-Asian violence and racism and just like firsthand sort of seeing how like Asian American communities across the U.S., like in Chinatowns, are sort of being decimated and marginalized even further by like COVID racism and things like that has also really like inspired me to keep doing this advocacy work and has like assured me of the importance and like the necessity of the stuff, you know, I'm doing and the stuff like community organizers are doing. So it's sort of this blend of like having this sort of theoretical and historical background and also um, just caring a lot about like material real world issues. So you came to a lot of people's attention through a letter that you helped put together. Tell me about how that came to be and what you said. Yeah, totally. So the letter was sort of spontaneous, but what happened was near the end of Asian American, I think Pacific Islander History Month, I was contacted by like a family friend who wrote for this WeChat microblog. And microblogs are sort of like the accounts that put out information and put out content on WeChat for people to read. Sometimes the articles like go really viral and get shared a lot of time. It's also a lot of like a way information or like misinformation is spread. A family friend or a a connection that I knew who volunteered at one of the few progressive microblogs on WeChat reached out to me because she knew I was very active with like Asian American advocacy and also like creative writing, asking if I could, you know, write a poem or like an essay about the importance of Asian American history um, for the microblog. But at the same time this was happening, it was toward the end of May. So it was just like days after George Floyd's murder, um, you know, at the hands of police and all these protests and sort of outrage was happening. But at the same time, I saw a lot of, you know, non-Black people, um, Asian Americans included, participating in very anti-Black rhetoric, disparaging or delegitimizing the Black Lives Matter movement, and just overall saying some really prejudiced stuff, like kind of affirming or feeding into this stereotype uh, or the criminalization of Black people and somehow implying that, you know, George Floyd's death was deserved or police brutality against the Black community was, you know, merited. And I was just like, really horrified by it. But I think it just spoke to a lot of patterns within non-Black communities, specifically like the fact that they, they can simultaneously be affected by white supremacy, but also contribute to anti-Blackness, which is 
obviously one of the pillars of white supremacy. And so I just really wanted to combat all of that information going around and bring like a stronger call for like black and Asian solidarity. So I wrote this, I think I was just really angry and emboldened to write this. It was completely spontaneous, but I'd like typed out this like open letter to members of my community or, you know, whoever would read it on WeChat because I wanted people on WeChat to see it because they are often the ones kind of spreading this misinformation about the Black Lives Matter movement and this really like vile rhetoric. So I wrote a letter about anti-Blackness that I saw firsthand and also have heard about, and it's really widespread in the Asian American community. And then I emphasize, like, you know, we're not this model minority that can afford to disparage Black and brown people and think that that aligns us with white supremacy and that we are free from the violences of white supremacy. And I pointed out this long and rich history of, like, Black and Asian solidarity. For instance, Yuri Kochiyama who was an Asian American feminist who worked alongside Malcolm X and this history of Vincent Chin, who was actually an Asian American, Chinese American man who was killed by a white supremacist. There was no justice for him because of the criminal justice system um, in a way that's like very similar to the way black men are criminalized and later sort of persecuted by like the U.S. criminal justice system. Um, and I talked about his death and how a lot of Black activists, such as Jesse Jackson, ended up standing together with the Asian American community to advocate for like dismantling of white supremacy together. So I highlighted all of those histories in my essay as well and just really called for more solidarity and more understanding of our history, not as like this model minority for which racism is not an issue, but painting standing with, you know, other people of color, especially Black people, as a necessity that is crucial for our survival against, like, white supremacy. And so that's all sort of the events that led up to the letter. And I got a bunch of my classmates and peers at Yale who um, were also really active in, like, Asian American student organizations to sign on with me. And I didn't really think much of the essay. You know, I thought some people would see it and respond to it. But that was the essay that it kind of blew up overnight on WeChat and went very viral. And all of these people started talking about it. At first, really like positive or constructive things, like it seemed to be sparking a lot of good dialogue. But then that's when all the criticism came in, all the sort of denial came in. That's a whole thing that started the WeChat project. Well, yeah, I heard that people went after you pretty personally in your family, and there was a lot of attack on it, both the ideas and things more personal, right? Oh, absolutely. So the first few responses I got to the letter were from people who were like, I've never thought about this before really interesting discussion, really interesting history. And then like a couple days later, I would wake up to my email inbox, like flooded completely with messages that were, a lot of them were in Chinese, which is really good because I'm not very good at reading Chinese. So I don't know what they were saying, but <laughs> a lot of them were the same sort of anti-Black rhetoric I was talking about where people were saying things like, 
you know, Black people are criminals. They deserve this kind of treatment. Or George Floyd was no angel. Like, why should we stand with the Black Lives Matter movement? Just these really sort of awful things. And those comments came like flooding into my email all over social media, obviously all over WeChat. Like I became this sort of symbol of what a lot of like WeChat conservatives or right wings disliked about progressives, like a very vocal Asian American feminist who, you know, was very openly talking about intersectional activism and Black and Asian solidarity. And then the sort of attacks went from there were all these like microblogs and blog posts written in response to my essay, obviously sort of parroting this really harmful model minority narrative. Um, just to clarify, the model minority myth is this white supremacist illusion or myth that basically states like it's basically one specifically made to drive a wedge between black and brown and Asian American communities. And it specifically is condescending or telling the black community, look at Asian Americans, you know, look at their wealth, look at their education, whatever. They escaped the violences of white supremacy. So why can't you? And it's a complete myth because it completely discredits patterns of immigration that lead to like those statistics in the Asian American community that we have like higher education, more, you know, income, more like wealth, class privilege. It just ignores all the historical factors that go into that. And also just the fact that, you know, anti-Asian racism is not at all comparable to anti-Blackness in this country. Um, and it's also a very flattening view of the Asian American community because we are not, you know, model minorities. Um, there are huge like class disparities and racial disparities and different sorts of racializations of different groups in the Asian American community that it's a really flattening and harmful stereotype for our community as well. But there are all these people who are like writing these articles, parroting this model minority myth and being like, you know, if Black Americans worked harder and they worked as hard as us, they could escape police brutality um, and all these like awful symptoms of anti-Blackness. And those are the sort of responses that were coming in at first. But then as time went on and my article kept spreading and there was more media coverage of it, that's when the harassment and the doxing started to happen. My parents are more active on WeChat than I was. And my mom told me one day, I think somebody like leaked our address and they leaked my personal phone number. And there have been all these strangers like calling my phone number and other things like that. And I was just shocked that people would go so far to like not even engage with my argument anymore, but start attacking me as a person. They dug up all this like random personal information on my family and myself that was supposedly meant to like discredit me. They did like Google searches for me and pulled up all these like results just to somehow like discredit my argument. I started getting like really misogynistic, like personal attacks on social media, people like using slurs against me um, or just saying really like, like, you know, derogatory, like ad hominems against me, people making anonymous accounts and trolling me there or like sending me harassment through there where I couldn't identify them and like report them to their workplace or anything. Some of the most shocking things that happened to me were uh, one day I woke up and 
there are suddenly I had like 50 or 100 new Twitter followers. And I looked at the people who were following my Twitter and they were all accounts that were created in like the last few days, no profile picture, no real identity. Um, And it was just all people commenting under like my unrelated tweets, like you're a race traitor, you're a self-hating Asian person because you're criticizing, you know, anti-Blackness and you're speaking about anti-Blackness, saying all sorts of like, you know, demeaning personal attacks. And then suddenly I saw this Twitter thread pop up where those same people or those same people who are making the anonymous accounts were trying to tag Yale and my employer's Twitter accounts to try to get them to like suspend me. And so I later found out that this is doxing. It's like digging up personal information on someone and using it purposefully as like an intimidation tactic to silence them. My family ended up installing security cameras because like some of the threats we got like escalated a lot and we began to like fear for our safety and our well-being. But after, you know, doing more advocacy work since then, I've just found out this is something that happens to a lot of Asian American women who are working in the public eye and who are feminist and very outspoken about things like misogyny, anti-Blackness in the Asian American community, and also just outspoken about like social issues in general is a lot of people will sort of organize to actively find ways to harm us and to sort of intimidate and like harass us into silence. And so that's something I kind of experienced with that moment and that letter, but it's something that like I still have to deal with today. And unfortunately, a lot of like, you know, femme and feminist Asian American creators and just, you know, women of color deal with sort of uh, who are doing this like activist and advocacy work deal with on like a daily basis. Um, But it first started happening with a letter, which definitely really prepared me um, for stuff that would come later on. Well, that's just awful, actually. Uh, Sorry, you have to deal with people like that, just hard to hear. Do you think that this was an organic thing? Do you think it was an organized thing? Do you think it has origins at all from the Russians who are trying to split our society up? Or do you think it's actually just like conservative Asians out there? Is this white people posing as Asians? Like, do you have any sense of like, where is this coming from? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think from my experience, a lot of the rhetoric or the misinformation, I think one of the biggest issues, for instance, on WeChat right now is anti-affirmative action or is affirmative action. Um, There are a lot of Asian Americans, conservative Asian Americans, and just like maybe even like politically like apathetic or neutral Asian Americans who feel very strongly about affirmative action because a lot of right-wing or conservative media, like white conservative media has sort of twisted it to become, to spread this really false myth and damaging myth that affirmative action is something that hurts Asian Americans or it's discrimination against Asian Americans. And they start scapegoating all the people who affirmative action like benefits, which also includes a lot of Asian Americans. I think people forget that Asian America is not a monolith and there are people who really benefit from affirmative action policies, but it really just allows people to scapegoat like black students, brown students, low income students and other students who would benefit from affirmative action. 
it's really easy to get immigrant or diaspora communities to believe really harmful myths like that. They feel like no one else is really talking to them about this. A lot of the times I've noticed these immigrant groups, like for instance, Chinese immigrants, they feel like, you know, mainstream American media is not covering anti-Asian issues or is not covering these moments of like very real discrimination and racism that they feel when like conservatives are finally talking about an Asian issue through the lens of like affirmative action, they really tend to like latch onto that. And I would say a lot of this posturing on WeChat has real world effects. Like those last two, I mean, when the DOJ looked into Yale recently and tried to, you know, obstruct affirmative action there, a lot of that had to do with like WeChat organizing and organizing on part of, um, you know, conservative Asian Americans. Same thing with, uh, uh, you know, the group that filed a lawsuit against Harvard that was a like predominantly Asian American group. But at the end of the day, all these groups have like connections to a lot of like white conservatives who have been trying to dismantle affirmative action for decades. Yeah, I was happy to see the Justice Department pulled that lawsuit as soon as Biden came in and these issues have gotten caught up in partisan politics, right? In in one side trying to gain more voters in the Asian community, both sides trying to, but by very different methods. Yeah, absolutely. I think conservatives and right-wing politicians have been very good at mobilizing and radicalizing Asian communities, and not just Asian, just like immigrant communities in general, because of their, you know, lack of access to information and lack of knowledge or sort of knowledge gap about like, you know, which policies and what kind of history really helps them or what kind of groups we should really be aligning with if we are to really achieve like equality and liberation. And so they've become a very good target for right wing politicians and leaders who really do not have their best interests in mind um, and are really just looking for more voters or more support from um, this sort of group of people who have been neglected before in electoral politics. Now you've become more or less an expert on what's going on in WeChat and and in your community. What do you see? What are people saying on both sides? What's working? What's being heard? Where I see there could be a lot more mobilization is leaders and progressive politicians, like especially reaching out to and working to understand what um, these immigrant Asian American communities really need or like identifying their needs and like genuinely, you know, working in their best interests or working to fulfill those needs in terms of policies. I think the affirmative action example is a really good example of how like conservatives or like right-wing media has latched onto these very real feelings of discrimination that a lot of Asian immigrants face or a lot of Chinese immigrants face and using it sort of to fit their own political agenda and saying like, hey, look at this point, look at this example of anti-Asian racism in the case of like Harvard discriminating against Asian students, which is like not even, it's also just like, not even like factually correct, like statistically affirmative action doesn't even hurt Asian Americans. 
does Harvard have a quota on the number of Asians and more would get in if there weren't these policies about diversity is the argument, right? Yeah, but it's not even it's not even true because affirmative action, uh, contrary to what a lot of people believe, is not quotas. That's not allowed under affirmative action policies. But sort of just latching on to these very real feelings of marginalization and discrimination, but instead of, you know, pointing to things like, you know, racial inequality, white supremacy, xenophobia, you know, elitism that really do hurt a lot of Asian communities. They turn around, they scapegoat black and brown folks who also face a lot of marginalization under white supremacy. So I think that's something that conservatives have been really adept at. And it's just not something I see as many progressive leaders doing or like, you know, identifying genuine needs of immigrant and um, Asian American communities and, you know, mobilizing people to actually fight for and advocate for, you know, strategies and policies that would actually benefit our community. So you decided to start this WeChat project. What's sort of the founding story of that? It definitely had to do with all of the backlash I got for my letter on Black and Asian solidarity during the summer. I saw all these sort of personal attacks and sort of doxing happen to me. Um, And after connecting with a lot of progressive Asian American leaders, I mean, especially like organizations that I had like looked up to and all these leaders I looked up to connecting with them. And, you know, having them also say like, yeah, I've been doxxed by this particular WeChat group too, or like this, these, this WeChat group or this WeChat organization has been like very instrumental in, you know, stopping our work on promoting or advocating for affirmative action. I've realized like misinformation on WeChat is a real problem and it radicalizes a lot of people and, you know, very harmful ways or very damaging ways. And it has like real life material effects on policy and can like actually harm Asian American, other communities of color, other marginalized communities. I started contacting um, a lot of like progressive Asian American, um, usually college students that I know. Um, And also there are a bunch of college students who reach out to me or, you know, second generation Chinese Americans like myself who would reach out to me saying like, you know, I really loved your letter and it sparked this great conversation between me and my parents who had, you know, never even considered this issue or never even knew about this, you know, long and rich history of Black and Asian solidarity and intersectional activism. So they reached out to me with comments like that, really encouraging comments like that. And I was like, I think this this letter is a really good sort of entry point into like healing these sort of generational gaps on WeChat for instance, like older generations of Asian Americans who know less about like U.S. history, Asian American history, um, history of activism, who don't really like have the vocabulary to express like their feelings of marginalization instead kind of latch onto these like conservative talking points, how there's sort of that gap between them and their children, like second generation Asian Americans who tend to be a little bit more progressive. And so I decided to team up with all those college students who reached out to me or, you know, college students I know had like similar interests um, in advocacy, especially on WeChat, to start the WeChat project. Um, And we really try to position ourselves not as like 
we are your children. We're going to educate, you know, like you ignorant parents on like social issues. We definitely don't approach it from that angle. We try to approach it from this angle of like care and compassion, like as your children and as the second generation or like the future of Asian America, like we want to open this like intergenerational dialogue with you and talk about issues that aren't really being discussed in an open-minded or fair way on WeChat, like affirmative action. Like we'd like to provide some alternative narratives to, you know, what is like commonly seen on WeChat, like affirmative action hurts Asian people. Like we want to dispel those myths in regards to anti-Blackness. There are a lot of people sort of calling for more policing and these really harmful policies on WeChat during the um, Black Lives Matter resurgence. And we also wanted to write articles about the history of policing and how it has this really racist and anti-Black history and founding in this country that a lot of people and a lot of immigrants are just genuinely not aware of. And so we really try to approach our work from that angle um, and really started to sort of bridge those intergenerational and knowledge gaps between first-generation immigrants and second-generation like Chinese-Americans. Did you form a nonprofit? Did you raise money? Have you staffed this with anything beyond volunteers? Would you like to? What organizationally have you done? Yeah, so organizationally, we want to stay away from becoming like a nonprofit. If we get any funding at all, it's like completely crowdsourced. Like we have like a Patreon um, where people can donate because we want to be entirely like volunteer run and like grassroots. And we don't want to like have a certain like political agenda to fulfill. So we try to stay nonpartisan and completely volunteer. So right now our organizational structure is we have like a team of volunteer leaders, um, including myself, who really determine the tone of the project and the vision of the project and also kind of determine what kind of content we want to create, what articles we want to write, what partnerships we want to have, like what organizations or like Asian American organizations we want to amplify and boost and work with. But we also try to stay away from being too like partisan because I think um, staying nonpartisan and staying completely volunteer run, just, you know, people doing this out of genuine care for our communities is what gains a lot of trust from the people we want, you know, reading our articles. Have you built an email list? Do you have followers on different platforms? How have you like aggregated the influence that you're trying to have? Yeah, totally. So we actually do have an email list and we have social media and we're pretty active on Instagram, Twitter. Mainly we've used social media, like I've used my social media platforms to boost the WeChat project and recruit volunteers. Also just reaching out to like Asian American student organizations at like different college campuses has really helped. And so we recruited like a pretty sizable group of volunteers Um, For instance, like college students interested in doing social media and outreach and writing articles, native Chinese speakers or like Chinese international students who are interested in translating our articles, because that's also like a really important part of our work, too, is like overcoming the sort of language barrier between us and the people we want reading our articles. Um, And so we recruited a lot of volunteers that way. And we've also gotten some pretty like decent media coverage. Like we've been covered by SubChina, which is an outlet like specifically talking about Chinese issues for readers in the U.S. and abroad and also by Vox. Um, We've gotten some mentions in like foreign policy and the New York Times. 
Um, so just trying to like really use social media and media outlets to really recruit more volunteers in a sort of like grassroots way. What kind of impact do you think this is having? Is it changing dialogue on WeChat? Are you changing minds? Is it going your direction? Is it going the other direction? What do you see? Yeah, I think it's something that I feel really compelled and encouraged to keep working on, like judging from some of the responses we've received. Um, For instance, over the summer, we wrote this article that was circulated pretty decently about dismantling the model minority myth um, and the sort of myth of American meritocracy that if you simply work hard enough, you'll escape from the harms of white supremacy and elitism and xenophobia and all of those things. So really dispelling those myths and kind of diving into this history of systemic racism in the U.S. that a lot of Asian American or Asian immigrants probably aren't you know, super aware of. And the responses to that were quite positive. And I think we have a pretty good following of people who are like interested in learning more about Asian American history and the history of racism and talking about race um, and issues of race in the U.S. And so I feel pretty encouraged to keep working on it. And there's also a lot of interest from like second generation Chinese Americans and Asian Americans like myself who are like, this is a real problem. And I feel kind of compelled to like um, get on board and help, you know, combat it in any way possible. When you talked about reaching out to other progressive organizations, particularly in, you know, Asian communities, who are you talking about? Who have been good allies for you? It's been really encouraging and inspiring to talk to Asian American leaders or like civil rights groups, um, such as like Asian Americans Advancing Justice, lawyers who have been working on promoting affirmative action for like decades now, and to have them support our work and be like, hey, this is I'm really glad this project is happening, has been really affirming for me. Like I said, I've been doing uh, like advocacy work for Asian Americans for a really long time, like these really respected organizations. Also confirming the value of our work has, has, has really encouraged me and has really encouraged us. The kind of work that you're doing on WeChat with respect to Chinese Americans seems like you could have very analogous work in many other communities, in Jewish community, in Hispanic community. There's lots of other people in the, in the racial or ethnic spectrum who have very similar things going on and are being targeted in a similar way by the right wing. Do you see efforts like that happening? Do you have interest in expanding what you do as sort of a template to, to take it elsewhere? Have you thought about that? Yeah, like I said before, this is an issue or sort of the radicalization of immigrant groups or minority groups toward the right wing. It's not an issue exclusive to East Asians or just Asian Americans. There are a lot of immigrant groups that are going through the same thing. Um, So I've definitely thought about expanding our work to include more solidarity with other groups. What comes to mind to do? Just making people aware that this is a problem because I think this sort of radicalization was really visible to me because I'm like pretty connected to WeChat and, you know, Chinese diaspora social media platforms. Are there other platforms like outside of WeChat that you're aware of that another group is similarly afflicted? Definitely. I've seen 
progressive like Indian Americans talk about WhatsApp, Korean Americans on I think Kakao Talk, Line, Signal, those other things. It's a mess out there. That's why I've called my podcast Great Battlefield because in so many arenas we have this sort of low-level civil war going on about trying to frame the debate in a way that serves one party or the other or one ideology or another. It's kind of interesting that you got caught up in this so young in such a public way. Do you wish you had the letter back because it pulled you into to so much notoriety and, and in a certain way so many attacks? Or are you really happy you did it? When you reflect now at the path that you've put yourself on, how do you feel about it? I definitely don't regret anything. Like I said before, the doxing, the internet abuse, and the harassment, I just, you know, recognize that all as efforts to silence or like intimidate me into silence. And so I don't let it face me. And I know it's something I'll experience as an Asian femme working in this field for what I intend for like a long time. As you return full-time to being a student, do you think that you'll be able to have this continue? What do you think about the future for the WeChat project? Yeah, I totally intend to keep doing this. Even as I go back to being like a full-time student, it's just something I'm very passionate about. Yeah, I feel compelled to keep working on it and maybe even like integrating it into like my schoolwork or, you know, doing more research on this in like an academic context. Is there a question that you wish I had asked that I haven't? I think we've covered everything I really wanted to discuss. Yeah. Okay. It's been great talking to you. It's been an honor to talk to you. I'm happy that you're out there doing what you're doing. It seems meaningful and impactful. And so I hope you keep doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else you want to say? I think that's really it. Yeah. Thanks for such a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time. That was Eileen Huang of the WeChat Project. You can find her at thewechatproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.